Hello, listeners, and welcome to Litigator Libations, a podcast created specifically for Military Defense Council. This podcast provides the thoughts and suggestions of the host on military justice and trial advocacy, but it is not an official offering from the United States Air Force or the Trial Defense Division. Defense Council should, of course, always conduct their own research and make their own determination on how best to represent their client in a particular case. I am Daryl Johnson, and it is 5 o'clock here in the National Capital Region, which means it's time to have a drink, relax, and share some thoughts on defensive litigation and advocacy. I hope you'll forgive me for this week's episode, but I have a bit of a cold, so my voice is a little bit off. But in this episode, we're going to discuss United States v. Black, which is a Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces case from August of 2022. We didn't have a chance to discuss it last season, so I'm going to pick it up here, especially since CAF hasn't issued any new opinions yet in its current term. For the advocacy portion, we're going to move to a five-part series created by Alan Abrams that focuses on delivery. That is, how we say what we say in court. So first, turning to United States v. Black. Private First Class Black was a soldier in the Army, and he was with his unit at Fort Polk, Louisiana for training. As part of this training, members of his unit were required to perform guard duty 24 hours a day, broken into two 12-hour shifts. PFC Black was lucky enough to be on the day shift. PFC Avery was also a soldier, and he was on the night shift. When he showed up to relieve the day shift, he told PFC Black that his smartphone was broken, and therefore he was without a phone. He asked to borrow PFC Black's phone. The guard duty was apparently not that demanding because PFC Black agreed to let PFC Avery use his phone and told him he could use it to send text messages, make phone calls, play games, and watch YouTube. To ensure PFC Avery could use the phone if it locked up, PFC Black wrote down the passcode that would unlock it. At some point in the night, PFC Black's smartphone did one of those smartphone things where it offers to show you pictures from days gone by. According to PFC Avery, he attempted to swipe away the notification, but in doing so, he inadvertently opened a gallery on the phone. He noticed that some of the images in the photo gallery were of other female soldiers and appeared to have been taken without their knowledge. Although the female soldiers were clothed, the images were focused on their buttock or otherwise inappropriate. PFC Avery thought the images were troubling and called the acting first sergeant. The first sergeant went to the guard station and asked to look at the phone so he could see the images. PFC Avery consented, unlocked the phone, and gave it to the first sergeant. The photo gallery was immediately visible upon unlocking the phone, because that's how it had been closed, but the first sergeant thought there might be more incriminating evidence so he closed that photo gallery and started looking through other photo galleries where he eventually found contraband. At that point, the first sergeant locked the phone and, for some reason, returned it to PFC Avery, although he told him not to use it. The first sergeant was not able to report the incident until the next morning, after which CID agents detained PFC Black and seized his phone. PFC Black was then taken to CID offices where he was informed of his Article 31 rights, which he invoked and declined to make a statement, and he requested an attorney. PFC Black did, however, consent to the seizure and search of his smartphone. The CID subsequently searched the phone and found the contraband. Hopefully, your defender ears perked up at some of these facts, and you are imagining what PFC Black's defense counsel should have done at trial. And if one of those things was to file a motion to suppress all evidence and derivative evidence obtained from the search of the phone conducted by the first sergeant, good for you. 
That is what PFC Black's attorney did, and the military judge agreed, making three significant conclusions of law. First, that PSC Avery did not have common authority over appellant's entire phone because the phone was provided for a limited purpose and for a limited amount of time. Second, that even if PFC Avery did have common authority over the phone, he only consented to a search of the one photo gallery that was visible and did not give the first sergeant permission to rummage around the entire phone. Third, that PFC Black's subsequent consent to search the phone did not cure the taint of the first sergeant's illegal search. Based on these conclusions of law, the military judge suppressed all evidence and derivative evidence resulting from the illegal search, which means the government had no admissible evidence of the contraband found on PFC Black's phone. The government requested reconsideration and argued that the contraband would have inevitably been discovered despite the illegal search, but the military judge did not buy it. Faced with what was a dispositive ruling, the government elected to file an Article 62 appeal to the Court of Criminal Appeals. The Army Court of Criminal Appeals reversed the trial judge because it found the military judge abused his discretion because, in its view, PFC Avery did have common authority over the phone. The CCA apparently felt that PFC Black assumed the risk that Avery would rummage through the phone and grant permission to the government to do the same. Although not mentioned in the CAF opinion, the Army Court of Criminal Appeals must also have concluded, contrary to the military judge, that PFC Avery's consent to search was not limited to the photo gallery that was visible to PFC Avery, but instead allowed a search of the entire phone. The Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces granted review on the following question. Whether the Army Court erred in its abuse of discretion analysis by 1. creating a novel test for common authority, 2. failing to give deference to the military judge's findings, 3. comparing a modern cell phone to a traditional container, and 4. finding error based on a difference of opinion. The CAF immediately points out that, because this is an Article 62 appeal, the CAF does not review the CCA's opinion, but rather conducts a direct review of the military judge's decision. That review requires the court to review the evidence in the light most favorable to the prevailing party and binds the court to the military judge's factual determinations unless those determinations are unsupported by the record or clearly erroneous. As a quick aside, we lawyers can't resist using extra words. For instance, here the court may only deviate from the trial court's findings where the finding is either unsupported by the record or clearly erroneous. I am very curious how a finding that is unsupported by the record would ever not be clearly erroneous. Similarly, I am curious how a clearly erroneous finding could be supported by the record. Anyway, back to the case. The CAF, as did the CCA, reviewed the military judge's decision to suppress the evidence under the abuse of discretion standard. An abuse of discretion occurs when the military judge either applies the law erroneously or clearly errs in making findings of fact. Thus, properly stated, the question before CAF was, quote, whether the military judge abused his discretion when he granted appellant's motion to suppress the evidence obtained from the search of appellant's phone, end of quote. The CAF held that the military judge did not abuse his discretion. This case is helpful in its examination of what amounts to common authority under the Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. A consent search is valid where the government obtains voluntary consent from the individual who owns the property 
or from a third party who possesses common authority over that property. As stated by the CAF, the validity of third-party consent does not hinge on the niceties of property law or on legal technicalities, but instead is determined by whether the third party has joint access or control of the property for most purposes. The degree of control over the property is a question of fact, and whether that degree of control is sufficient to establish common authority to, content to search is a question of law. The burden was on the government to prove by clear and convincing evidence that PFC Avery had joint access and control to the degree that it conferred a right to consent to the search performed. The military judge did not abuse his discretion in finding the government failed to meet that standard because PFC Black had only loaned the phone to Avery for one night and for the purposes of sending texts, calling, playing games, and watching YouTube. The CAF did not take the assumption of risk approach taken by the CCA because the military judge found, as fact, that PFC Black had no expectation that Avery would do anything beyond what he had authorized, and Black never gave PFC Avery permission to look at his photographs. The government argued that, despite the verbal understanding, by giving him the phone and passcode, PFC Black essentially gave PFC Avery unlimited physical access to the phone, and therefore Avery had common authority to consent to the search. Kaff pointed out that, thankfully, access to property does not amount to common authority to consent to search. As the court stated, if that were true, quote, a property owner would assume the risk that another person might provide consent to an unlimited search by law enforcement simply by giving that person limited temporary possession over their property, end of quote. Here I envision a party where law enforcement asks each guest as they leave which rooms they visited and whether government agents may search those rooms, or where a hitchhiker consents to the search of a passenger compartment, or when you hand a friend your purse to hold while you dust yourself off and they immediately consent to law enforcement for the seizure and search of the purse. To me, those would be clearly unreasonable. Kaff noted that Supreme Court guidance is that the key consideration in assessing Fourth Amendment consent cases is reasonableness rather than technical property interests. This is not a situation where possession is nine-tenths of the law. Quote, Thus, the appropriate question is what would the typical reasonable person have understood by the exchange between appellant and PFC Avery? End of quote. Based on evidence elicited at the motion hearing, the military judge concluded that by stating what PFC Avery could use the phone for, he impliedly restricted the scope of PFC Avery's authority to consent to search all of the phone's galleries. The CAF noted that its judges may have reached a different conclusion, but there must be more than a mere difference of opinion to establish an abuse of discretion. The CAF also addressed the government's inevitable discovery argument, and once again, although it reaches the correct result, the CAF fails to accurately apply the doctrine. The government almost always argues, and there are cases that seem to agree, that discovery would be inevitable because if the government actor had not done the illegal thing, they would have done the lawful thing, and the government would have discovered the evidence. That is not inevitable discovery, at least not the inevitable discovery doctrine properly applied. To prevail under inevitable discovery, the government must prove by a preponderance of the evidence that at the time of the unlawful search, government agents were already taking actions or pursuing leads such that their simultaneous actions and investigation would have inevitably led to the discovery of the evidence, even absent the unlawful conduct. 
Here, the government argued, as they tend to do, that if the first sergeant had not conducted the illegal search, he would have done the lawful thing and simply reported to CID what he knew, i.e., that Avery saw images of clothed soldiers that appeared to be inappropriate and taken without consent. The government then argues that if this thing that never happened would have happened, the CID would have opened an investigation, sought search authority, and that would have inevitably led to the contents of the other photo galleries on PFC Black's phone. Unfortunately, Kaff states that, quote, this theory is not illogical, end of quote, but then goes on to explain why the military judge did not abuse his discretion in finding that the information available to the government prior to the illegal search would not have resulted in CID obtaining a search authorization for the contents of the phone. That finding was based in part on the fact that the CID did not investigate and the government did not charge anything related to the images of the fully clothed soldiers. It simply wasn't that serious and was unlikely to result in a CID investigation, let alone a search authorization for the full contents of the phone. I say it is unfortunate that CAF considers the government's theory not illogical because it is not consistent with the inevitable discovery doctrine. The doctrine doesn't say that the government gets to pretend they followed the law. The doctrine requires a showing that despite the illegal conduct, other investigative steps were already in motion that would have led to the discovery of the same evidence. Unfortunately, the doctrine has been misapplied so many times that now the law essentially allows for a hypothetical do-over where the government gets to create a fictional investigation that stayed within the bounds of the law and argue that that investigation would have inevitably discovered the illegally obtained evidence. It makes me crazy. As defenders, we need to keep fighting to try and get the courts to apply the doctrine correctly. Okay, as I have discussed this case, you may have been yelling at your phone or computer, but he consented, which, of course, he did. If you will recall, PFC Black invoked his right to silence and an attorney, but consented to the search of his phone. So who cares about the illegal search? The CID had a consent to search. Well, the problem is that but for the illegal search, the CID would not have sought PFC Black's consent. The legal theory is called attenuation, and it asks whether the voluntary consent was sufficiently attenuated from the illegal search such that it cured the taint of that search. To determine whether an accused's voluntary consent to search is sufficiently attenuated from an earlier unlawful search, CAF assesses three factors. One, the temporal proximity of the unlawful police activity and the subsequent consent. Two, the presence of intervening circumstances. And three, the purpose and flagrancy of the official misconduct. The military judge turned to the factually similar case of United States v. Conklin, 63 MJ 333, where CAF applied the three factors and found the consent was not sufficiently attenuated so as to cure the taint of a prior illegal search. Fun fact, I was the defense counsel in Conklin, and, as I recall, during a dorm inspection, an instructor jostled Airman Conklin's desk, which woke the computer, revealing a desktop image of a partially clad actress. The instructor notified another NCO, who took the opportunity to search Airman Conklin's hard drive where he found contraband. The NCO contacted OSI, who pulled Airman Conklin from class, advised him of his rights, and obtained consent to search the computer. I argued that the instructor's search of the hard drive went beyond the reasonable limits of a dorm room inspection and was an illegal search. 
I argued that the consent was the fruit of that illegal search because OSI would not have sought consent but for the illegal government conduct. Obviously, we lost that motion at trial, and, thankfully, Porterman Conklin was willing to plead not guilty because the government would not have allowed us to enter into a conditional plea, and we went to trial despite the government having the evidence seized from his computer and his statement acknowledging that he had seen the offensive images on his computer. About which, by the way, he told OSI that he thought, I really need to delete those when he saw them. And because I can't resist, I'm going to give another brief aside. Airman Conklin applied for and was accepted into the Air Force's return to duty program, which actually existed back then. He graduated from that intense, months-long program with a recommendation for return to duty. The Air Force then refused to return him to duty because he was a sex offender, based on his conviction for possession of child pornography. That dragged on for quite some time and gave his case some time to work its way to CAF, where his conviction was thrown out and he was returned to duty regardless. Okay, sorry for the war story. Back to United States v. Black. The CAF held that the trial judge did not abuse his discretion in finding that the temporal proximity between the illegal search and Black's consent favored PFC Black and suppression of the evidence. Although the time between the illegal search and the consent was greater than the couple of hours in Conklin, those hours were nighttime hours where everyone was asleep. Regarding the presence of intervening circumstances, the prosecution at trial conceded that there were no intervening circumstances, and therefore the military judge reasonably held that that factor also favored suppression. On appeal, the government changed its tune and argued that the trial judge misapplied the intervening circumstances factor, but as Kaff noted, Quote, it would be passing strange for this court to now hold that the military judge abused his discretion by accepting the government's concession on this point. End of quote. Regarding the last factor, which is the purpose and flagrancy of the official misconduct, the court again found that the military judge did not abuse his discretion in finding this factor favored suppression because, as in Conklin, although the unlawful search itself was not flagrant, the government's exploitation of the information obtained from the search was because the government would not have sought consent but for the illegal search. Thus, Caff held that the military judge did not abuse his discretion in finding all three factors favored PFC Black and affirmed the trial judge's suppression of the evidence. A huge win and, for me, a nice trip down memory lane. At this point, I'm going to hand it over to Major Alan Abrams, for him to discuss his multi-part series on presentation. Hi, this is Major Alan Abrams. I'm here for Advocacy Focus, where we're going to be kicking off a multi-part series on delivery. We've had plenty of episodes about what you say. We've talked about refreshing recollections. We've talked about a bunch of hearsay exceptions. We've talked about what to say to lay the foundation for a prior and consistent statement. Heck, we talked about that for five straight episodes. For these next few episodes, we're going to move away from what and shift our attention to how. How you can tailor the words that are coming out of your mouth to be more compelling. To give a little context, think for a moment. What is the greatest speech you've ever heard? Is it Representative Barbara Jordan's search for a national community in 1976? Is it Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s final speech, I've been to the mountaintop? Is it a is it President John F. Kennedy rallying the nation to choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard? Is it Winston Churchill committing Britain to fight Nazi Germany on the beaches and the fields and the streets and in the hills? 
Is it President Ronald Reagan on the 40th anniversary of the Normandy invasion, committing Cold War America to the same values for which the rangers that stormed Omaha Beach and scaled the cliffs fought? All of those speeches are powerful speeches. And they're powerful not just for what was said as part of their substance, not the what, but also how they were delivered. We probably also all think of speeches that, in one way or another, fell short. Now put yourself in the courtroom. You're at the defense table. It's sentencing. The brand new judge advocate representing the prosecution stands up and starts reading like a robot. It falls flat. So let's see if we can make it of an example. When Airman Smith went into Airman Jones' dorm room, when he took that credit card, when he used that card for his own selfish reasons, all of those were a chance to stop, to turn back, to show that the lessons and values of a wingman had sunk in. Instead, he was thinking only of himself, and that's why, instead of being free, free to make selfish decisions for only himself, he needs time to learn that lesson. Airman Smith deserves confinement. It sounds boring, right? It sounds disingenuous. From what I've seen, and from most of what I've seen, I should say, delivery, the how of talking, is not part of our explicit trial advocacy curriculum. If you look at, say, the Thomas Mowat book, Trial Techniques, which is what I used in law school for my trial advocacy course, there's not a single chapter or section specifically addressing just how to talk. In Air Force trial advocacy courses, how we deliver our questions and, and or arguments, that tends to come up, but it tends to come up in feedback, almost as something sometimes as an afterthought, unless it's really glaring with somebody. So during the course of this, let's see if we can be a little bit more specific about why how we talk matters and how we can develop skills to do it better as part of our own advocacy. There's a 2011 book by two University of Virginia law professors, Robert Saylor, who sadly passed away just a few months ago, and Molly Bishop Shadle. It should be noted that I was a, one of their students in an oral advocacy class in law school. I would not necessarily say that I did well. Uh, but the book by Professor Saylor and Professor Shadle is called Tongue-Tied America, and they make their argument for why the how of delivering what you have to say in court really matters. They write varying pitch, cadence, Speed and volume keep listeners awake, alert, and interested. I can't agree more. And that's completely true. Hearing the same thing read at the same pace and the same tone of voice and at a constant volume, it's boring. You could probably think of a college or law school professor whose delivery was just that boring. And you could probably think of all the people who maybe struggled to stay awake in that particular class, regardless of whether it was at 8 a.m. or 6 p.m. But there's another component to why delivery is so important, and it's also almost musical. Delivery, the pace or speed of it, your starts and stops, your pitch and your volume, it harmonizes the substance of what you are saying and the meaning that you intend to that substance to convey. So rather than butchering some of the famous speeches of the 20th century that we talked about earlier in the beginning of this segment, let's maybe illustrate the point with a dramatic reading of an excerpt from... The Cat in the Hat. Here's one reading. The sun did not shine. It was too wet to play. So we sat in the house all that cold, cold, wet day. Here's another reading. The sun did not shine. It was too wet to play. So we sat in the house all that cold, cold, wet day. 
Those two versions of the same 23 words tell a different story. One probably sounds cheery, almost sing-songy. The other probably sounds almost like someone is bored or miserable, right? As in the speaker is bored and miserable. It's not that one reading or one way of articulating that is more right or wrong than the other. But just like in litigation, it's all about the story that you want to tell. You know, it might matter if you want to tell just happy kid story or it might want to it might be a different story if you want to put the listener to this story in the same moment of this is a sad and boring day. The delivery, the how, that frames the mood. It is the score for the movie that your examination or argument would be framing. Since we talked a lot about pauses in our last episode, we're going to talk about three specific aspects of delivery over our next three episodes, or at least segments where I'm talking to you. Pace, pitch, and volume. For each episode, we'll talk about what you can do with that facet of your delivery, what each of those options conveys, how you can do it and practice it, and other relevant considerations specific to litigation. This episode has largely been an introduction to the topic, but we'll highlight one more important consideration for you to think about in your practice, between at least to think about between now and the next episode. So to stick with our music analogy, it's the importance of knowing your own instrument, your speaking voice. Think about what you know about your own voice. Maybe you know it from seeing your advocacy on video or in an audio recording. Maybe you know it from feedback from friends, teachers, or colleagues. Maybe you know it from experience. Some of us tend towards speaking fast, some towards speaking at a more measured pace. Some of us tend to have the inflection of our voices tend upwards. Some of us have high voices or loud voices. Some of us have voices that have a narrow range of notes. That's a polite way of saying it's kind of monotone, and that would certainly be me. And some are more soft-spoken. Some of us have our normal voice, and some of us have a different lawyer voice. Knowing this baseline for ourselves is important because it suggests the normal soundtrack we communicate in our advocacy. In turn, knowing that baseline helps us identify what we can practice and adjust to eliminate what might be viewed as problems that may be distracting to a fact finder, as well as the way we can maybe make changes during the course of our advocacy to drive home and emphasize the substance of what we have to say. We'll turn to that in greater detail in our next segment. Thank you for listening, and I hope it was helpful. Until we meet again, this is Daryl the Decap signing off. Check in with us again in two weeks when we cover a new topic. Until then, any ideas, comments, or suggestions you have are always welcome. You can email me at william.johnson.1 dot one four seven at us dot af dot mil thanks again for listening and thank you for all you do i wish you the best of luck litigating your cases just like you always do till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away and will you please say hello to the friends that i know Happy to know that you saw me go, I was.